can culture do? What can culture do? What is culture? Culture unites us. So we're currently still waiting for people to move in, but I think I suggest we get started. Uh, due to the limited time that we have, uh, and I don't want to waste time because we have a very interesting individual uh, with us speaking partner, Sunil Kilnani, of course, who is an Avanta professor and director at the India Institute at King's College in London. Uh, Sunil, it's wonderful to have you with us here. And, uh, of course, uh, we're going to talk about, and we're going to pick up on what uh, the speakers have uh, touched upon, that of the uh, obedience, uh, disobedience, and, and all that. But of course, I cannot, I cannot uh, start without first referring to your book, Incarnations, A History of India in 50 Lives, which has also, also been turned into a BBC uh, series. And uh, a lot of what you uh, write in this book about the profiles that you are covering um, has to do, of course, with... Uh, civilization and how it has evolved and what we are trying to convey with this uh, particular conference as well, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think what, what I was trying to do with this project, um, <clears throat> which, as you say, um, was also a 50-part uh, broadcast series with, with the BBC and the World Service, um, it was really, in a sense, a kind of um, engagement with, from a different angle, with the very well-known uh, series that Neil McGregor did, um, which was a history of the world through a hundred objects. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the question of objects has, of course, come up a, a lot in the discussion over the last couple of days. Um, and <clears throat> the point about objects is they don't have a voice. Uh, they are what we make of them, and we can tell stories about them. Um, I was interested in trying to tell a history of a civilization of, 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 of India uh, through voices, through individuals who were able to talk back, who did leave a trace, um, who did have ways of expressing their own ideas. So in a sense, it, of course, we bring our interpretations to them, but they, as opposed to objects, had a voice and could speak and think. And not only that, they were very important intellectual figures in the history of the country. So... That was one of the, 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 the purposes that I, you know, I, I, I wanted to say, can we think about history not simply through fragments, through relics, through monuments, through memorials, objects, uh, etc., paintings, but through the individuals who made it and, and, and look at their choices. But also, uh, you know, the other thing I was trying to do with this is to, in a sense, relocate India's history in a global history. To make the point that, you know, we often think of India as without individuals. We think of India as a land of religion, India as a land of caste, India as a land of community, and these big collectivities, Hindus, Muslims, Brahmins, uh, you know, Shudras, etc. But so I, I, I wanted to bring the people back into Indian history and to show that those people across time had extraordinary connections with the world. So, you know, I mean, take the first figure that I start with, which is the Buddha. Um, and, you know, the Buddha is connects all through Asia. Um, his, 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 his ideas, his symbols, what he believed in and, and, and fought for travels right you know, up through East Asia down into Southeast Asia. Uh, and, and, and with many of the figures in Indian history, I was trying to open it up 
and to say, you know, India was one of the and still is one of the great crossroads of intellectual currents across the world. So if we're thinking about history and how we want to convey culture, particularly at a moment when museums and cultural institutions are thinking about, you know, how do they bring other voices, other aspects of the world into what they show, it seemed to me that this was a way to remind us as, as readers, but also as cultural institutions, that we, 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 we need to um, not just add other stories to the Western narrative, but to really rethink the place of, of, of the West within these other global locations. And uh, you do cover a very intriguing lives here. Buddha, you say you start the book uh, with Buddha all the way up until Gandhi. And uh, they were perceived to be radical disturbers uh, in their times, mm -hmm. uh, uh, disobedient uh, disturbers. Now, in hindsight, of course, uh, it's, it's, it's a different story, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, well, that's exactly one of the things um, I, I really wanted to um, uh, remind people of, that, you know, what's happened with so many of these figures, whether it's Gandhi, whether it's, uh, you know, right up to, to, to uh, beginning with the Buddha, they become, in a sense, mummified. They become monumentalized into these great sage-like figures. And, and they become static, and that's often what museums do. You know, they show the sculptural images, or they, 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 they sort of fix the meanings of these figures. And in fact, these were, you know, very often angry young people. They were people kicking against their society. They were dissenters. They were precisely disobedient. That's what made them famous. They were reformers. And so whether it's, 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 it's Kabir, the, the, the 16th century poet, um, who, 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 you know, who, who, in a sense, refused both uh, Islam and Hinduism and kind of, in, in a sense, invented his own religion in some ways, or whether it's, um, uh, you know, women painters like Amrita Shergill, who I, I, I write an essay about in, in, in the book. I mean, these were figures who were reacting against the conformities and orthodoxies of their society. And I think, you know, we have to bring that energy of dissent and disobedience also back into cultural insti institutions, and not just to see these as venerable, sage-like, uh, you know, um, um, figures who, who, whose message was a p abstract spiritualism. They were political figures. They were fighting about social change. Uh, you know, another woman I write about is Mirabai, uh, who was a, 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 a she, she was a social reformer who used song. Uh, to, to convey this uh, kind of anti-caste and anti-male uh, dominant message. Um, and and uh, so, so the, the, these are people who were really arguing with their societies. Um, and I think that's something that we often lose in sometimes the over-composed, over-pacified image that cultural institutions like to give of the past. So, so you know, when we talk about culture as about harmony and, and commonality and connections, yes, that's true, but it's also about conflicts. It's also about arguments. It's also about principles that people believed in and fought for and fought against other things for. And I think that's a function that cultural institutions have also to, to pay attention to. Do you think that's... Uh being a disturber is not just a desirable aspect, but a necessity to change the culture, the necessity to change the culture that you live in? I, I think so. I mean, I think this is very much borne out by, by, by Indian history. Um, for instance, I talk about the Buddha, 
And, you know, one of the interesting things about the Buddha is that, of course, he is born in northern India, Nepal, uh, uh, and for several hundred years, uh, he's a very important figure in India. But then he disappears from Indian history for about 1,500 years or even more. He, he, he has a life outside of India, but not in India. It, it, he's it, for a variety of reasons, Brahminic reactions and so And then when is he rediscovered? Well, he's rediscovered in the 20th century by one of the great uh, uh, protesters and activists and thinkers uh, against the caste system. Uh, B.R. Ambedkar, Dr. Ambedkar, who is one of the men who helped write the Indian constitution and was a great thinker of modern Indian democracy. And it's through Ambedkar that, Ga that B the Buddha comes back into Indian history. So today, the Buddha is a great figure of the lowest caste, the, the outcasts of Indian society, the Dalits, who turn to the Buddha. So you, you cannot escape the political edge uh, of that. And it was Ambedkar's ability to go back to the Buddha and say, look, the Buddha was against caste. The Buddha preached equality. The Buddha said you don't have to have priests to, to in, in the temples. You can have a, your own individual relationship to God. You don't need the Brahmins. And that's been a very powerful message today for, for, for Dalits in India. So, so yes, I think, uh, and, and, and you know, you are seeing social change in India. It's been happening slowly because India is a democracy and it, it hasn't been through a kind of violent revolution. But absolutely, I think that, that, that social change does come through, through those kind of elements. And you see this also in relation to, to the, the changing position of women uh, as well. Is there a particular person uh, today, living today in India, that uh, you would deem worthy to be added to this list? Well, I, I was very clear in writing this that this is a history. So every person included in this book is, is what we say in India has, is, is expired. They have uh, moved, moved, moved on. So, so there, there, there aren't any living figures. And you know, I think, I think, I, I wouldn't want to make those choices now. But I think, you know, it, it, uh, the, the the kinds of figures that probably, if you were to write a book like this in, I don't know, 50 years' time, um, would be drawn from other fields. For example, um, I, the last figure in, in my book is an, in, an Indian businessman um, called Dhirubhai Ambani uh, and his family, his sons now are the richest uh, people in, in India. Uh, um, uh, and and you know, so, so I kind of start with India's uh, origin of global spiritualism and end with India as the kind of fi uh, the place for global capitalism to, to emerge. But I think 50 years time from now, you would have many more people drawn from Indian business. You would have people drawn from Indian civil society. I mean, w women like Aruna Roy, who have um, was a very instrumental figure in a very important moment in Indian democracy, which was the establishment of a law of basically freedom of information law. It's called the right to information. And this has meant that it, it's still fought over, but at least the principle that public uh, authorities are accountable to the people and must make their documents available. So figures like that, um, writers, perhaps you know someone like Arundhati Roy, who is an intellectual but also an activist. So, so I think they'd be drawn from different fields to, I, 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 from, from now. Right. Uh, let's see if we have any questions at this particular point. Comments, remarks. Uh, that if you do, please uh, let us know uh, right there. The microphone should be coming to you. Do we have a microphone for this lady here all the way on the right? Yeah, coming to you. Please introduce yourself quickly. Hello. Uh, thank you, Laura Masria, architect. Um, just a simple question. Is this a kind of a, a statement about the limitations of a museum? Because your, I mean, your initial 
reaction is to write a, a scholarly book, uh, which takes research, and you know, this is that's the question basically. Yeah. Well, it's it's um, no. I mean, who's I, I wouldn't want to presume to you know talk about the limitations of museums because you know there are many others who are struggling with those sorts of issues uh, better than I am. But 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 I think it's it, it, it is an attempt to. Th- ask us to broaden how we think about the past and about history. And in a sense, it's a supplement to um, what museums are often doing. And it's an attempt, I think, partly to bring life back into these cultural institutions. And, you know, one of the things that I was very struck by um, when I was working on this this book, and I did I traveled a great deal across India, we, re- we recorded... Um, you know, these 50 broadcasts and podcasts in different parts of the country. And um, I I was really struck by young people in India who, you know, I would go to extraordinary archaeological or architectural sites like Vijayanagar, um, uh, Hampi, um, and others. And, and, And the young people wanted to know about these the, the past they wanted they, they, they were living amidst these historic monuments and memorials but they didn't really know anything about them they didn't learn about them in school the local museums that were supposed to be telling them about them did so in extremely dull and unimaginative sort of you know ways so so uh, uh, it was really an attempt to say can't these cultural institutions that we have in India and they're in many ways far behind what's going on here um, some way to prompt them into thinking a bit more imaginatively. Um, so, you know, for instance, the podcast that I did, um, that was also, you know, partly because I, I, I was aware that, that that's what younger people I mean, that's what people are li- people are listening to the radio now, not on broadcast radio, but through earphones. So it was a way also to try and reach a younger audience. And so not so much to to judge about the limits of museums and cultural institutions, but to say, let's you know th- this this discussion that was going on earlier about museums beyond their walls, um, but also museums beyond objects. Um, uh, so so if, if museums are engaging with a, a story about the past and to make that available, um, why not start to think about other kinds of ways? The gentleman in the first row. Go ahead, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Zal Antronikashvili, uh, Center for Literary and Cultural Research in uh, Berlin. You started uh, your talk uh, with... Uh, yeah, with your mission to bring uh, Indian history back to the or connect back uh, the Indian history to the world history, and I wonder what what is your understanding of world history? It is a history of communication, or how you understand the concept of world history, and how you understand the Indian history? Is it a national history? It is a some kind of different scale. What you're applying to tell the story of India? Mm, mm. Yeah, those those are, are both um, uh, can argued over questions, and, and I'm not going to be didactic about those that, that or stipulative about them. I mean, I think that um, you know, starting with <coughs> your second question first, um, I I do I I take India really in this project as defining a kind of large subcontinental. 
uh, space, um, not the nation state. So, for example, you know, in, in terms of the 20th century, I, I, I write about Jinnah, I write about figures who would figure in other national histories post-1947. Um, I, I guess I do think of it in some sense as a kind of civilization, but a civilization that is defined by its capacity to interconnect with other civilizations. So in, in that sense, a kind of it's not it's not a civilization defined by one single feature. Um, there's an openness about it. And in a sense, you could say that the, the, the caste system is a kind of reaction to that openness. It's precisely because Indian history has been so open that you've kind of had the counter-reaction of a development of fixed, rigid structures. And so that kind of dialectic, if you like, is, is one of the, 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 the features, I think, of Indian history, um, which, I, which I sort of bring out. What do I mean by world history or global history? You know, I'm, I'm, I know that this is a kind of, there's a great historiography around this, and I'm not particularly wedded to, to any of those uh, schools or, or methods. I mean, I, I, I'm particularly, I guess, personally interested in the movement of ideas above all. Um, often those are linked to physical, physical, you know, commodities and so on. But, but I, I, I do think that, you know, one of the things that is has been striking about the Indian past is its capacity to generate um, contrarian or, or, or kind of ideas, really, um, that, that, that sort of run through the society and that have moved outside of India, too. And, and again, you know, Gandhi would be a, a very powerful uh, recent example of that. So, you know, often India's material conditions um, have not been, uh, you know, the, compar comparable with other parts of the world. Um, but the the capacity to generate new 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 ways of thinking, um, Indian philosophy, Indian mathematics. I write about ma mathematicians also um, in 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 my book. Um, I write about philosophers. Um, so the the capacity for really quite fundamental both abstract thought but very practical social critique as well i think is very striking again you know that another paradox of that is that while you've had these often quite revolutionary ideas yet in many ways the society has not changed uh, in in step with that and that also interests me why does india have this capacity to uh, capture an appropriate radical ideas and turn them into um, into kind of more docile figures Looking in the audience, if there are still more questions or comments at this particular point. doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, we'll wait for a bit more, but let me ask you. Uh, India, of course, uh, is always mentioned uh, on this when it comes to most powerful nations uh, in the world in the future, most prosperous uh, nations in the future. So, obviously, it, it is, uh, has, uh, yields a great deal of uh, potential. What about arts and culture? If you, if you look at India being one of the dominating countries in the 21st uh, century, which by all accounts most serious uh, scientists and historians would concur, uh, how do you evaluate the arts and culture scene in, in India? Is it also blossoming? Do you see a development there? <coughs> um, yeah, I, I, I do think it's a very interesting moment in Indian artistic and cultural uh, life at the, uh, right now. Um, I think, you know, partly it's the result of now 
70 years of being an open society. Um, and, and so there has been this kind of ferment of, 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 of thinking and, 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 and ideas going on. Um, you also are now, as you're suggesting, starting to see a certain level of wealth which, of course, is always important to enable uh, the, uh, many of these forms to flourish. I think you're also starting to see now some very, very sharp political battles going on in India, and that's also a very important way to focus um, artistic and intellectual and cultural endeavor. Um, there are battles about, you know, what the definition of India is today. There are kind of religious nationalists uh, who, who are in power today who would want to kind of take the country in a particular direction. But there are many dissenting voices. There are regional cultures which are emerging very strongly in the northeast and the south. There are, you know, women are becoming extremely important voices uh, in public life in India. Uh, and indeed, many, much of the gender violence you're seeing against women today is precisely because they're no longer conforming to their kind of, you know, supposedly cultural traditions. Um, they're no longer, they, they, they're no longer internalizing those norms and values and they're fighting against them. So there's a kind of reaction from a patriarchal society to try and keep things in its place. So I think all of these, this combination of an open society, of a rising level of wealth, which is enabling forms of expression, um, and s real political conflicts, um, really about core issues in the society. I think all those three are coming together to make a very volatile, creative, and I think it's going to be a very imaginative cultural moment. I mean, you see this in film today. You see it in writing, not just in the English language, but in, in India's many other languages. Um, so, so, yes, I, I think that, you know, and, and that's where, in a sense, for Western societies, um, you know, this is the great, in, India is the great democratic experiment. It's, you know, since the 18th century, since the American and the French revolutions, it's the Indian, if you like, revolution of the mid-20th century, which has created the most important, in my view, democratic experiment of our times. I mean, just imagine if India were not a democracy, if, say, if it had ceased to be a democracy in 1951, let's say. Can you imagine how much con more constricted our horizons would be for the prospect of democracy in the world. Um, so I think, you know, we, we, it, 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 it behoves the West from a political point of view, from an economic point of view, and from a cultural and intellectual point of view to engage with what's going on in, in, in India, and likewise for India to engage much more. The Western media oftentimes when it talks about India and particularly its current administration, obviously a resurgence of nationalism is always coming up in that yeah. uh, context. Uh, um, First of all, from an Indian perspective, w would you concur, would you agree that there is a resurgence of nationalism in India? And if so, how does it uh, reflect uh, on, on the arts and culture scene? Because we talked about arts beyond national boundaries before. <coughs> yes, I mean, as in other parts of the world, there is a resurgence of a very narrow kind of nationalism uh, tied to religion tied to a kind of definition of India as a Hindu society, which of course is manifestly false. Uh, India is one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. It has a deep connection and heritage of, 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 of Islam in India. S similarly, Buddhism and all the other great religions have an important presence. So, um, you know, the, the attempt to define Indian nationalism in terms of one religion is, is, is a complete um, trick that's being played by current politicians. 
that said, there have you know in, nationalism has been important in India because after all that's what we took the British on with. Um, and but that was a different kind of nationalism. That was, if you like, a much more inclusive type of nationalism. And it, so you know, in 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 my work and wrote another book earlier called The Idea of India. And and in that book, I tried to define what I thought was this conception of the Indian nation, which is a the inclusive one. And it's a tradition that's you know you you can trace from Tagore to Gandhi to Nehru um, and 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 onwards. Um, so I think you know it's not that uh, for a country like India a certain a, a certain account of nationalism is always going to be important. Um, and that that that's in a sense what what it's a question of what that definition is. Um, and you know Tagore has a, a wonderful line which I think um, is actually very relevant for for all of us thinking about cultural institutions. He says somewhere um, you know, the mind has faculties that are universal but habits that are parochial. Um, and I think that's that's true. And I think you know nationalism is one of those habits. It's a parochial habit which draws back our faculties, which are universal. So, you know that's that's the kind of contest. Uh, and you know right now there is a battle about the definition of India. Um, people are arguing over it. Uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. You're obviously uh, based in London, and you do travel all around the world, also uh, introducing your book. What, what is the biggest misconception the so-called West has of your country, has of India? Well, I've also, I also spent quite a lot of time in the U.S. I've just spent a, a year at, at, at Princeton. And, um, okay, well, let, let me give you an example. I, I include the U.S. and the so-called West, right, okay. still, still. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, under Trump, under Trump, we'll, we'll still include it, but okay. we'll see how much longer. Okay, well, let, let me give you an example, that actually, just from this weekend's um, uh, New York Times. So the New York Times has just started um, running uh, these kind of obituaries of people they've overlooked People they forgot they didn't write the original obituary in history, you know, when they actually died. So one of them uh, this weekend is of the painter, the Indian uh, woman painter Amrita Shergill, whom I write about in my, my book. Um, and it's amazing because you know it's it, it, it's they're, they're, the New York Times, with a very benevolent uh, view, is trying to be more accommodating. You know, let's bring in brown women because we ignored them in the past. But it it, it makes every it makes the problem worse. Because first of all, it describes Amrita Shergill as the Indian Frida Kahlo, right? So immediately, you know, brown painter, brown painter, let's link them together, you know, very nice. It then goes on to say, you know, Amrita Shergill painted the pain of Indian women. Well, she did much more. I mean, she was a much more radical figure. She, 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 she had a much wider canvas. She, she, she was not just interested in painting Indian women. She was interested in painting India. Uh, and 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 you know also painting Europe. So so there's a way in which you know even when there are these attempts to kind of be more accommodating. Um, so so that, that's by way of saying I wouldn't say there's one basic misunderstanding, but there's a method of misunderstanding uh, which I think needs to be addressed. And that method of misunderstanding is. Exemplified in the, in in these uh, examples, where where you know you 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 feel you want to be inclusive, but you don't really know how to do it. So you reach for all the instincts that make you do it wrong. <laughs> so uh, before we run out of time, uh, let's take two more questions. Uh, second row, first row. Judith, um, are you going to get involved at some point? No, go ahead, please. Yeah, Sigrid Weigel. Um, you talked about the kind of nationalism, inclusive nationalism of India, and I would be, like to uh, you to elaborate this a bit more. 
Yeah, so um, it, it's the, I mean, if you look at sort of the 20th century Indian history, I mean, there has been this long argument, actually going back to the 19th century, about, you know, is India defined by its religions or is it defined by something that transcends its religions? And in a sense, that was the big argument that resulted in the partition of India. Um, you know, in a sense, was India a civilized, uh, was it two nations, Muslim and Hindu, or was it a, sing a single civilization? And, you know, for someone like Gandhi, for instance, I India was a single civilization that contained different religions. Or the, 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 the so, so the inclusive definition of nationalism, I would put it this way, you have, you have the philosophical and, if you like, the moral elaborations of that idea, and even aesthetic to some extent, in the work of people like Tagore and Gandhi. But then, after 1947, when India becomes independent, you have to find a way to turn that idea into a state form, right, into a modern state. And that's, in a sense, the task that someone like Nehru, India's first prime minister, had, and, and, and the people who made the Indian constitution. And it's, it, if you look at the Indian constitution and the foundations of India, it's a very interesting experiment. So that it, India doesn't define itself by a single language, by a single religion, by a single ethnicity, you know, it, it, the, the different religions are recognized with their own legal, civil codes in Indian law. A multiplicity of languages are recognized. It's not a standard definition of a modern nation state. Now, that is what I would call the inclusive model. It's not a consistent model. It's not logically rational. It can be critiqued. And in a sense, it's very vulnerable. It's a very fragile uh, project because it goes against the 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 model of the Euro of the nation state which is a european model defined by a single religion a single language a single ethnicity as in 19th century europe and so now what you're seeing is a battle between this this conception what i call the idea of india and a more if you like western form of nationalism which presents itself as a kind of religious Hindu nationalism. But it's actually inspired by Mazzini and so on and so on. I get a sense that you wanted to add on that. Uh, perhaps if we can get the microphone back to Lady one more time. Go ahead, please. I'm really uh, struggling with this question, this, therefore I insist. So Hannah Arendt, for example, took the United States as an example for a state that it is based on the on constitution and not on language, ethnicity, and the like. Um, and when you now explained that, it, I think there are some similarities, mm -hmm. but where is the aspect of nation in the strict sense involved in what you explained? Is it this the past that uh, forms the, the common civilization? Or... Okay. What is it? Well, it, it's no, it's it's several things, and I, you know, I think you find a very interesting account of this, for for instance, in Nehru's The Discovery of India. So, yes, it's it's the inheritance of a certain past history, uh, which which for someone, the figures I mentioned to go Gandhi Nehru is seen as a kind of history of mixing. It's also a commitment to a set of political principles, um, which are embodied in the constitution. But it's also a project of future development. So it's it's a project. So, so you know the, the the idea that India was a, a nation still in the making, 
that, that, that it had to, so that the commitment to economic development, the commitment to some measure of social redistribution and so on. So it was a future project as well. It's future-oriented too. So I think it's, those, it's each of those elements. Um, but it's very, it's very clear that in that early definition, it, the nation is not defined in terms of blood or ethnicity or language or, or anything like that. It's a very, for a new poor anti-nation-state coming out of colonialism, it's quite a radical definition. Thank you for your patience. Go ahead. No, and I think you see, Raman Schlemmer, that you see this also in the diversity of the museum world in, in, in India at the moment. Um, you have, of course, um, very different developments in, in different parts of the country because it is so diver diverse. So you have the National Museum in Delhi, which is very much under the umbrella of the government for, for decades now and, and has a big struggle. Um, you have the um, Victorian, the Prince of Wales Museum, former... In, in um, Bombay, yeah. Yes, sorry. CBSMS, I, I, I think it is. Yeah. I haven't got used to the new name. Yeah. But you had this incredible exhibition, India and the World, which was an exchange with the yeah. British Museum also, which I think for the region was actually maybe more important than the Abu Dhabi for, for the region is. I think it was really extraordinary as yeah. an exhibition, maybe not the end part. And then you have phenomena like the Kochi Muziris Biennale, which is a very, very open forum. Um, it's, they're showing contemporary art, which you could not show in Mumbai because the government, the, the city government of Mumbai is very conservative and very restrictive. restrictive. And you have um, the Kerala uh, population, which is Muslim, Christian, uh, Hindu, and um, has a communist government at the moment, uh, where where people just flog the Biennale and and go in, and you don't have that in all parts of India in the same in the same way. You have this incredible museum in Calcutta, which is not very active at the moment yeah. yet, no. but it's much better than it was. But so you, just to come back to the questions of museums also, and that you have this incredible uh, move at the moment in India of private institution, of private mm -hmm. individuals uh, putting up shows. There, there was this Serapiti uh, festival in Goa, which was extremely well done. It was done on Indian art, but of the subcontinent. India is looking very much to Sri Lanka, to Nepal, to Bangladesh as well. And so the variety in diversity. Sure. No, I mean, absolutely. You, uh, the, the rise of private museums is, is very also occurring. And, and you know, the, the, those are great. But, of course, private museums are also a way of, you know, private families and companies branding themselves. So there's a certain narcissism involved in this too. You have another interesting phenomenon, actually, which I would add to. And it came up in the group that I was talking about yesterday that Martin Roth and Jochen Nettelbeck and I had set up together on kind of bringing Indian and European uh, art and muse museum people together. And you have this phenomenon of, in a sense, citizens' museums. So we, we had an account of a, a guy living in a village in Bengal, in West Bengal, and he became obsessed with these terracotta fragments that were being turned up by the farmers as they were cultivating the land. And over decades now, he's collected these terracotta fragments, some of which go back to the 16th, 15th and 16th century. Um, and he has these warehouse, these sheds that he's built, you know, makeshift. He doesn't, he's a citizen, he's a farmer, where he just collects these terracotta fragments. And, you know, 
that's not even the museum world doesn't even notice that it doesn't even that's not considered valuable and yet it's this extraordinary collection made by someone who you know it's really a local museum created by a local person so you do i mean i think this 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 idea that you know often you hear that indians are not interested in the past or indians are not interested in museums or they don't they don't have a kind of relationship to the past they i i think that that's a kind of very shallow and lazy way of thinking about it there is a great interest in the past and there are different ways of of dealing with it and you mentioned the kochi biennale i mean that's an extraordinary uh, event every two years very challenging art um and you know it's not the kind of delhi london bombay art scene crowd that go to that they come for the first 3 days and then they're out thank god but it's actually local people in their thousands who are coming to see it students um families so so i think there 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 there's a way in which um you know it comes back to your your question of what's what's the future of indian cultural production and art and i think i think there's a great future precisely because people are interested in engaging and i think it behoves the 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 cultural institutions to respond to that um and you mentioned the the british museum uh mumbai uh, uh collaboration which which i kind of was a little bit involved in and, and i you know some of the discussions so i i i know how and and you're absolutely right i mean that was a it was a stunning uh exhibition and you know you come off a dusty mumbai street and you go in and you see these two extraordinary pieces the mohenjodaro uh, um you know woman with her arm like that and then a i think a mesopotamian figure right next to each other and just the 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 historical and aesthetic charge of those two figures was just you know mind blowing and people were really stunned by it and and then seeing again f- pieces brought together from different collections and and it was not what was i think one of the nice things that emerged with that exhibition was it was not a didactic exhibition it was not trying to say you know here is a kind of smooth seamless history of the world it was allowing for conflicts to to be shown between religions for tensions to be shown and i think that's also important i mean you have to recognize those looking in the audience for one final time if we have more questions or remarks i think we covered a astonishing amount of ground in the limited time that was given to us what's the latest project you're working on um, or are you just happy after this book <laughs> that to, to to take a well deserved rest i think certainly my 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 wife catherine boo is is kind of happy that and, and i'm happy that we've come to survive to this project um no i i am i'm actually i've been working on another big project which is a book about nehru um which will try to address some of these issues about um you know what kind of the what is the idea of the nation and and the thinking behind it because i think you know you you mentioned hana arent and of course one of the the great resources that western political thinking has is you have a tradition of fantastic texts you have a textual tradition of thought about the state about freedom about rights and so on in india particularly if you look at the sort of 19th and 20th centuries um of course there are texts there are speeches and so on but above all it's a history of practice and i think one of the functions of 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 historians and scholars is to elucidate and elicit the um the intellectual logic and principles behind the practice um so in the kind of 
life of Nehru in the kind of state he built, there's a there is an intellectual project. It's not just political, you know, reactions all the time. And so, you know, one of the things I was also trying to do with this book, with the history of India through 50 lives, was also to tell an intellectual history. That that often we don't have the same continuous textual traditions, let's say from, you know, from Aquinas to Hobbes to, to whoever it might, to Rawls today. But we do have figures whose lives were also arguments, whose lives were intellectual projects. And I think we don't recognize that enough. We think that somehow their lives are subsumed within a spiritual tradition or religion or, or, or you know, but actually, the, the, you know, so even, even people who use poetry and song, which has been a very important part of the sort of social reformers in Indian society, there, there's a whole intellectual universe that has to be kind of brought out uh, into that. So, so I'm interested in drawing out from the practice, from the lived history, what are the kind of deep ideas that, that, that have been shaping and can continue to shape the society. How long in total did it uh, take you to write this book? Uh, <laughs> um, it, was, it was done on a crazy deadline because we also had to do the radio programs. I, I guess I worked on it... Um, about three years, um, but wrote it in, in less than that, in, in, in much less than that. Well, uh, uh, wor well worth it. I mean, The Guardian doesn't call it the best possible introduction to of Indian history for nothing. The book is called Incarnations, the History of India in 50 Lives. Thank you so much uh, for you. taking the time. Sunil Kalnani, Thank very you, much Ari. appreciate it. Okay.